people have got this feeling that you just everything is falling apart. Every, every value, every principle that we had is just being ruined and attacked and destroyed. So you can see this like 60 years on from the 60s that this is really, you know, the fruits of that are, are, are coming up and, and it's a terrible uh, situation that we find ourselves in. Today I sit down with David Curtin, leader and founding member of the Heritage Party. David was previously a member of the London Assembly and a teacher. He often writes for publications such as The Conservative Woman and The Salisbury Review and is a speaker on issues such as cultural Marxism and contemporary culture. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. David Curtin, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Uh, yeah, good to be here. <laughs> so I asked you to come on to talk to us about cultural Marxism, it's a specialism of yours. Could you start by giving us a, a definition of what cultural Marxism is and some historical context? Yeah, well, a lot of people think and realise and feel that there's something really wrong in society today but can't really put their finger on it. But I think if you do go back and look at cultural Marxism, it explains it. And where we should go back to to start is look at Marx himself, who came before cultural Marxism, which was something that changed in Marx's original theories. So, of course, you probably know Marx wrote two main books... Uh, which are you know, more, more well-known than others. So there's the Communist Manifesto and there's Das Kapital. But Communist Manifesto, the first one, he sets out his vision of society and he sees society in his book as being unjust. I don't particularly agree with that. But what he says is that society is in conflict between oppressors and the oppressed. So you have oppressors and victims, and this oppressor-victim narrative set up. And he originally postulated that as being the capitalist or businessmen uh, as the oppressors and the workers as the oppressed. And so what he said is for society to get to a place of utopia where there would be perfect social justice, the workers had to realise that they were oppressed achieve class consciousness so they'd all come together and then they would have a revolution and overthrow the oppressed and then take the wealth of the oppressed and the, the oppressors, the capitalists, and then collectivise it. And he said, if this happens, there will be social justice. Um, of course, that's not true, because whenever it's been tried and implemented, you don't get utopia. You get death and hunger and oppression and tyranny, as you see in socialist um, uh, Soviet Union and China and Cambodia and so on and many other places. Um, but what cultural Marxism does is it translates that oppressor-victim narrative from the economic sphere to the cultural sphere. So the cultural Marxists that came later postulated that there were a whole variety of oppressor-victim um, dialectics in society. So, for example, men and women. Men are the oppressors and women are oppressed. And then women need to rise up and realise they're oppressed and take over, take the power that men have. For example, another one is you know, white people are the oppressors, black people are oppressed, or Christians are the oppressors, gay people are oppressed. And you can have as many of these narratives and, and uh, dialectics as you like. That's really what cultural Marxism is. I don't agree with it, but you have a lot of people pushing that and trying to use these new narratives to change society in the way that they want to. If you go to a well-known search engine, as I did, type in cultural Marxism, 
you get pages and pages of, of articles saying this is a dangerous alt-right conspiracy theory, and some academics say nothing of the kind even exists. What would you say to that? Well, I mean, the alt-right has only really existed for a few years. Cultural Marxism has been developing for a hundred years or more. And actually, you know, the words cultural Marxism are very, very powerful. And people who are pushing it on society don't like uh, for the normal people, the normal everyday man in the pub, to actually understand what is really going on. Because this is sort of being done. The, the societal change that cultural Marxists are trying to bring about, they're doing by stealth, under the table, without you're trying to do it without people actually realising that change is taking place. You know, almost like we are, as citizens, the proverbial boiling uh, frog in the boiling water. And we don't realise that the change is taking place until it's too late. So when people actually realise there is such a thing as cultural Marxism, what it is, where it comes from, that there are real academics um, from the Frankfurt School, which is called the Institute for Social Research, uh, in the 1920s that was set up, and Antonio Gramsci, also an, another uh, communist from, Ita from Italy who tried to uh, uh, develop the theory as well, and others, then... Um, you know, the, the cultural Marxists don't want people to know this is happening, but it is. Um, and when you can see it, then you can fight it as well. You can understand it, and then you can understand what's wrong with our society and who is doing it, and then you can fight against it and try to uh, retain society as you would like it to be. And so some people also say it's an anti-Semitic theory. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. And, you know, that, that's a way of trying to shut people down. You know, all kinds of smears. I mean, I've been accused of all kinds of things. I've been accused of being a homophobe or a transphobe or a bigot or a racist. Anti-Semitic is another smear that is thrown at people when there's absolutely no anti-Semitism in it at all. Look, I mean, Gramsci... The, who was the leader of the Italian Communist Party in the early 20s, wrote the prison notebooks. Um, and that sort of was one of the founding books that sort of you know, developed cultural Marxism as a theory. What he said in that book is that we need to change the focus of praxis in Marxism from the economic substructure to the cultural superstructure. Those are his words in his own book. And uh, later people have like taken that on and developed those ideas and come up with all kinds of ways in with which to implement that in society. So it's not anti-Semitic at all. It's something that is real and based on what real Marxists and communists have said in the past and are still saying today. To someone sitting at home, this may feel like quite an academic theory and maybe not so related to their life. Can you give us some examples of how cultural Marxism may affect the lives of an ordinary person in modern Britain? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, you talk about the academics, and it started with the academics and intellectuals because they wanted to use, you know, uh, different classes of people in order to affect societal change. Um, but actually in the universities in the 60s, if you like, a whole swathe of new subjects were created in order to indoctrinate the students. So it was, well, you know, let's think of Oxford and Cambridge, for example, the two oldest universities, uh, obviously, in, in the UK. Um, for centuries and centuries, what they taught was divinity and theology. They were centres of teaching about Christianity. And then there was the Enlightenment, and then you had the natural sciences, and, and they were introduced, and they became the largest part of what they did. Yeah, absolutely fine, because there's so much good research going on in terms of observing empirical observations of scientific phenomena. But since the 60s, 
you have universities introducing social sciences and then uh, subjects which actually undermine the understanding that we had before when we were essentially a Christian Western civilization. So now you have um, subjects like gender studies, uh, race studies, decolonization studies, and so on. All of these things which are trying to inculcate these class consciousnesses in students. And then people who learn about these things, they go out and then they try to change society by in the way in which what they've learned in these courses. So say you do, for example, race studies. You learn why white people are bad. You learn why white people are oppressed and why black, pe why black people are oppressed and why white people are the oppressors. So they introduce all of these new uh, language terms such as white privilege and so on and uh, white um, whiteness. Uh, white fragility and so on and then you get that filtering into the media and you get it filtering into entertainment you get it filtering into business and even into politics and then some people try to change the laws so that if you say something that somebody doesn't like then you can get arrested for it or you can be registered as uh, committing a non-crime hate incident for example you haven't done anything wrong but you've said something that offends somebody who's, who has an oppressor, who has a victim characteristic, for example. And then that can stay on your criminal record and it can affect you in your everyday life. I mean, th th this is something that is really, I think, oppressive and tyrannical itself in the name of fighting some kind of imaginary oppression that doesn't exist. So in the, the 20th century, um, in countries like China or the Soviet Union, um, the workers rose up in a revolution, but mm. countries like Britain resisted. Why was there this cultural resistance to the revolution? Yeah, well, that's what, another thing that Gramsci wrote in the prison notebooks is that when there was the, the, the attempt at revolution in the East, if you like, so the Soviet Union countries, Russia and so on, um, immediately, because the state was everything, it fell apart. I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here. But in the West, there was a firm fortification of civil society. A civil society was much more developed in Western nations, and it was a bulwark against a quick, violent communist revolution, which it didn't have in Russia because you know, back in 19th century Russia, there wasn't much of a developed civil society. The state was everything. So they killed the king, they killed the Romanov family, they, killed, they, they just executed them all. And then there was nothing else as a bulwark against it, they could just take over. There were actual revolutions in Hungary, Austria and Bavaria. For a short time, in 1918-1919, those three countries or areas became communist, but they were quickly overthrown. These regimes were quickly overthrown, Bela Kuhn's regime in Hungary, for example, only lasted seven months. Uh, the one in Austria only lasted a couple of months. It was very quickly overthrown. So that was the contrast he was making. Um, and that's because civil society was much, much more developed, you know, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in the in Prussian Empire, in Bavaria, also France, uh, the UK, you've got sort of the Fabians trying to agitate and so on. But they weren't getting anywhere because you've got, you know, guilds and clubs and societies and churches and, and all kinds of, you know, organisations which Roger Scruton calls little platoons, you know, that people belong to and they feel that they're part of. And, and people, and also the workers in the West 
were in a better situation as well than perhaps in Russia at the time. Uh, you know, because we were first with the Industrial Revolution in, in the UK, life was getting better. Yeah, I'm not pretending it was good for people uh, in the late 18th century, early 19th century. But by, you know, the 20th century, things were getting better. People were getting wealthier. People were seeing the benefits of capitalism. Uh, and you have businesses set up, all kinds of people, and it's part of civil society, people having shops and small businesses. I mean, some people call Britain the nation of shop owners, or they did in the past, so I'm not so sure now. But at the time, these things were things that gave people belonging outside of the state. So this was um, provided a huge bulwark of resistance, and the working people didn't want communism in Hungary, in Austria, in Germany, in France, in UK, uh, the USA. Whereas in Russia and the Eastern countries, uh, there was not that resistance there. There was no real organisation, so they could just come and take over. So because British society had these little platoons, as you mentioned, strengthening us, um, the cultural Marxists needed a plan B. Absolutely. What was, what was it? Yeah, absolutely. That, that was, as I've sort of said before and alluded to before, is actually refocusing uh, praxis, Marxist praxis, from the economic substructure and from trying to inculcate a violent, quick revolution. Um, you know, Gramsci, particularly, and, you know, and the, the academics in the Frankfurt School postulated the ideas of slow corrosion. So they needed to corrode and corrupt Western society slowly. So there would be a slow revolution where everything would sort of be, uh, you know, taken down and, and corrupted um, through the institutions. And Rudy Dutschka later came along. It was, he, he came up with the perfect phrase. It's actually from the 60s, but it, it could well apply to what people theorized in the 20s, which was the long march through the institutions. And so what they postulated effectively was they needed to get into the institutions and corrupt them from within. All of them, all of them. So universities, political parties, media outlets, and in the 1920s the media was nowhere as developed as it is today, but also Hollywood, you know, the entertainment industry, and businesses as well, organisations in civil society like the Scouts and the Girl Guides, for example, armed forces, they needed to get into all of these institutions and corrupt them from within, change the values that they had from within. So therefore people would not be patriotic. Uh, would not think of the family as a good thing. Even try to turn people against Christianity, which also is, you know, w we don't see that now so much because Christianity has been so eroded and so um, agitated against by cultural Marxists. But, you know, we have to remember up until sort of the end of the 1950s, the UK, the USA, Germany, the Netherlands, profoundly Christian nations. Christianity was the foundation of our country. I mean, we still got a, a little bit left, but that's been so corroded and so attacked. And that is one of the main targets of cultural Marxism, because that is the foundation that holds society together, along with the family and along with other of our institutions. So the leading Marxist theorist, Lukács, said, who will save us from Western civilization? Mm. Why were they so against Western civilization? Well, all of these things, which were a civil society, were a bulwark against a violent communist revolution. So they, they wanted to get rid of them, essentially, so that people would not feel 
a connection to society. Look, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago, um, to destroy a people, you must first sever their roots. So what Lukács and other Marxists of the time wanted to do was sever the roots between individual people and their nations and their countries so that they would get rid of patriotism. And so people would think of themselves as just individuals without any kind of connection. So why you go back to Marx and the Communist Manifesto, three things they wanted to get rid of was the nation, the family and property. Because those are three things that give you identity and give you belonging. And, you know, if you've got property, you, 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 you're responsible for what you own. You're responsible for your home and your house and your, you know, your business and the things around you. So they want to get rid of private property, including people owning businesses. So you don't have any, you don't own anything. You have no stake in your country. But also to get rid of the, the nation itself and to get rid of the idea of the nuclear family or the traditional family. So people don't have any connection either to the past, any hope for the future, or any connection, any you know, deep connection with people in your present. Those are the three things that Marx wanted to get rid of. And Lukács saw that that was very much part of Western society. You could change the word Western, Western for Christian. Um, back in you know the, the 1920s, the 1910s. That's essentially what he meant. Um, and so, yeah, they were very much against these things that give people a sense of belonging, uh, which come from Christianity, essentially and ultimately. You've talked about the way they attempted to destroy the Western civilization. How successful do you think they've been here in Britain? Since the 1960s, very successful, and they've done it without people realizing, you know, a lot, a lot. I mean, the, I mean, I'm I'm 51 now, 51 years old. These things were being put in place before I was born. So you know, a lot of the Western Cultural Revolution it was a cultural revolution. Happened in the 1960s. There was so much legislation passed there that brought in liberal, progressive laws and ideologies. You know, there was. Um, Divorce was made easier, abortion was allowed for the first time. Um, later on, you've got sort of same-sex marriage brought in, that's 2013, obviously, but that's sort of pro a progression and so on. Um, then you've got laws against speech, and so now you can be dragged through the courts and harassed by the police, you know, if they think you've said something racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic. Now, of course, I'm against real racism, but people can you know, drag you through the courts just for making a joke or that somebody finds offensive that isn't really offensive. Or so, you know, having a little bit of banter, a little bit of conversation in the pub. And this has been a progression you know, it's the, the, you know, obviously the, the academics that started it off were in the 20s, but you had a, another um, batch of academics in the 60s, Rudy Dutschker I mentioned earlier, in the New Left, and uh, Marcuse is another one, Herbert Marcuse, very well known, um, you know, in the, on the streets in Paris uh, in the 1968, you know, student protests, they were, had placards up with Mao, Marx and Marcuse, you know, so uh, Marx was the first, obviously, Mao, Marcuse, we haven't heard of him so much, but, you know, one of the, the new left Marxist academics that was trying to bring in um, you know, this, this sort of liberal progressivism, uh, which we now see the fruits of in our societies today. And, you know, people 
I've got this feeling that you just everything is falling apart. Every, every value, every principle that we had is just being ruined and attacked and destroyed. So you can see this like 60 years on from the 60s that this is really, you know, the fruits of that are, are, are coming up and, and it's a terrible uh, situation that we find ourselves in. You talked about free speech. Uh, let me read a quote from Suella Braverman, Tory MP. She said, Conservatives are engaged in a battle against cultural Marxism where banning things is becoming de rigueur where freedom of speech is becoming a taboo, where our universities are being shrouded in censorship and a culture of no platforming. So, uh, can you explain to us the role that uh, cancelling and uh, censorship are playing in this battle that she refers to? You know, I was actually there when she gave that speech. It was at the Bruges Group in 2019. And I was quite impressed because she's the first MP I ever heard to actually use the words cultural Marxism and actually say it and call it out for what it is. But yeah, one of the things I want to do is attack freedom of speech. So that, for example, today you have the situation where if you say there are two sexes, male and female, I deny that there are 100 genders, you cannot change your sex, men are men and women are women, you can lose your job. I mean, when she gave that speech, it was only three years ago, but yeah, people were being no-platformed in universities, but now people are being thrown out of their jobs, and even people are being threatened with jail for saying something, because it can be considered as stirring up hatred. There's a new law in the UK that says, you know, if you stir up hatred, you can go to jail. I mean, th this is something that's new, and... Um, the cultural Marxists have got everywhere in our political parties, in the police, in the courts, in schools, in the teaching unions, in the media, and they're all working together to try to cancel people who don't have the right politically correct opinions. And that can be something you know, like a, disagreeing with gender ideology, disagreeing with mass immigration, for example, because that's another oppressor victim narrative. You know, uh, economic migrants who are not genuine asylum seekers, but they're seen as oppressed, and then the indigenous people are seen as the oppressors. So that's another narrative that's set up. If you speak against these oppress victim oppressor narratives, then you're cancelled. You talked about Herbert Marcuse, who seems to be a name that comes up quite a lot. Um, I know in 1965 he talked about repressive tolerance and, mm. and was kind of calling for intolerance. Um, how do we understand this kind of hatred of tolerance? You will, he wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance. and Actually, what he was saying in that essay is that bourgeoisie society is, a, is oppressive. It's, it's, it's intolerant. It's tolerant of the things that, the, you know, the values that it has. So Christian values, family values, patriotism and so on. It's tolerant of them, but it's intolerant of anything else that is liberal, you know, or, or progressive. So, for example, you know, all of the crazy things you see. I mean, for example, uh, you know, we're, we're making this video today, but last week on a British television station, there was a transgender woman who's actually a man stripped naked and started playing the pan piano with um, his uh, male organ, if you like. That happened on television. Now, you know, in, back in 1965, no one would have let that happen, ever. That would have been considered, that would never, ever happen, ever, now or any time in the future. That would have been so disgusting, so disgraceful, that it would never happen. 
but now it's happening openly and people are supporting that you know so so this is what he was saying that society was uh repressive and intolerant of these kind of liberal actions if you like you know some bloke you know playing the piano with his piece um so what they wanted to do was invert that and what he suggested was instead of like the repressive tolerance of bourgeoisie society we need to replace that with a tolerance of liberalism uh, and progressivism and degeneracy if you like but also be intolerant to the bourgeoisie society or the christian society western society traditional society family values patriotism and so on in order to just completely invert what people are tolerant and intolerant of so that was what he was suggesting and then that was taken up by you know the, the useful idiot students in 1968 um, who went out on the streets you know for liberalism and you know uh, promiscuity and all these kind of things and abortion rights and uh, you know same-sex marriage and things like this it's coming later um, and uh, but then you know when they had their student days they could go off and, and get nice jobs and you know and uh, and uh, they weren't really affected by it but how it's affected you know the ordinary person in society today 50 years down the line um, is, is quite terrifying so uh, several times in the conversation, the, the media has come up and Hollywood as well. Yeah. What role is that playing in, in all of this? It plays a role on your subconscious and it plays a role subliminally. So you've got the academics who can come up with papers and talk about things academically. But culture is very important as well. And, you know, one of the, the Marxists in the, the Frankfurt School, Theodore Adorno, um, saw this and wrote in a number of books about, you know, using culture in order to undermine people, the values of society. So that's what Hollywood and the entertainment industry has been doing for many, many years, is undermining our values. So, you know, it's fiction, but it portrays the traditional family as being dysfunctional, wherever you go. Uh, and these days, Hollywood movies always have, you know, a gay couple in them, a transgender person in them, uh, a black woman who's powerful, but then they portray your traditional straight white male, family man, who would have been seen in the past as being, you know, the, 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 the pillar of the community, who looks after his family and is strong, would see that and try to portray a straight white man as being, you know, weak and wimpy and useless or oppressive. So, for example, the UK is 85% white people, um, but on the adverts between any television show, even if it's a conservative show, they would show pretty much 80% of the people being black and ethnic minority. And a lot of the white people they show, they show in a negative light, you know, doing negative things. And they show black people being positive role models. They show men negatively. They show women positively as being responsible and, uh, you know, and, and good people. And, and you know, I'm... I'm, I'm not against showing women and black people as being good, but why show men as being bad? Why disparage men in your dramas, in your adverts, in your entertainment? Why disparage white people? But this is what Hollywood, this is what uh, media stations are doing all the time, and it's affecting your perceptions subconsciously, and that's a deliberate thing, and that's deliberately... Um, because of the victim-oppressor narratives that they want to um, perpetrate. So 
So has this come about because there's people in positions of power who are purposely doing it, or is it more like a trickle-down thing is it because society has become so saturated in all of this? I think it's both. I think there are people who absolutely know what they're doing and are committed to communism, if they like, to continuing the programme of corroding our society and uh, changing our values and changing our perceptions and attacking everything that was good, you know, that was there before. Because some people do want to turn this, turn the West into essentially a communist society, communist countries. You know, get rid of the free market, get rid of property, get rid of the family, uh, and, and just you know, everybody be individuals who have no connection with anybody. So there are some people who are in positions of power and they know what they're doing. But there's a lot of people who are just useful idiots now who have been indoctrinated through going to universities, even through schools. I mean, all this stuff is going down into schools now, even to primary schools, to, you know, children of the very youngest age. I mean, the Jesuits, they used to say, you know, oh, give me the boy and I will show you the man. <laughs> I will give you the man. So they know that um, in order to really program someone's values at the most fundamental level, you have to get them before they're seven years old. And now we've gone through one or two generations where people in schools have been inculcated with these progressive values, cultural Marxist values, from the very, very youngest of ages. And it's really, really hard to you know, overturn that. It's possible, but it's, not, it's very hard to do that. So you have a lot of useful idiots who actually genuinely believe, genuinely believe that what is good is bad and what's bad is good. And that their values are all completely inverted from what they should be. So we've heard about this battle of cultural Marxism. It's been going on for decades. It can feel quite overwhelming. Mm. What can people do to bring hope for the future and to resist? Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that people can do. I mean, we need to take action. So they've gone for the long march through the institutions where they've got into institutions and they've got into positions of power in the institutions. We need to do two things. We need to take back the institutions and we need to set up our own institutions that are not corrupted. You know, that's why I'm acting in politics. I've set up a new political party, the Heritage Party, and we're specifically a socially conservative party, which stands on well, not specifically Christian party, but we have Christian principles and socially conservative principles, pride in our nation, family values. You know, we respect property rights and uh, the free markets, for example, which most of the other parties, even the conservative party, have now turned their back on. So we need to do that. And we need to act. You know, people get involved in politics, stand for office. The more people we have, the more chance we have of turning back these laws and then putting back in place good laws, which are going to build us up again rather than tear us down. But also get involved in business, in the NHS, in the entertainment media, in the news media, uh, in all of these fields, in civil society. Again, we need to take back the institutions of civil society, but where they've been corrupted beyond um, redemption, we need to start new things. And uh, that's something we need a movement. We need a people's army of like half a million or one million or two million people to do. Because it's something that everybody can do their little part in. The silent majority in this country and other countries is still bigger than the people who are perpetrating cultural Marxist ideology. 
but not as powerful because we're not in the positions of power because they have, have a definite program to get into all these positions of influence. Activists, Marxist activists, have deliberately got themselves into all these positions so they can change this. We need to mirror that and we need to do it bigger and better. We need to get into all the positions of power so that we can change things back the right way again. And on top of that, I would say as a Christian, we also need to pray because this is also a spiritual battle as well as a cultural and economic battle. David Curtin, thanks for joining us on British Thought Leaders. You're welcome. Good to be here. Thank you.